behind this, starting on page 635 and going on to 636 is on 138. This is a, as you can tell, a very lengthy passage. It is indeed the Word of God. And so I invite your attention then to the reading of this word of this portion of God's word. Ezra chapter two, all seventy verses. Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone's own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Reum, and Baanah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the people of Perosh, 2,172. The people of Shephatiah, 372. The people of Era, 775. The people of Pahath Moab, of the people of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The people of Elam, 1,254. The people of Zatu, 945. The people of Zakai, 760. The people of Bani, 642. The people of Bebai, 623. The people of Asgat, 1,222. The people of Adonikam, 666. The people of Bigvi, 2,056. The people of Aden, 454. The people of Atur of Hezekiah, 98. The people of Bazai, 323. The people of Jorah, 112. The people of Hashem, 223. The people of Gibar, 95. The people of Bethlehem, 123. The people of Netophah, 56. The people of Anatoth, 128. The people of Asmaveth, 42. The people of Kirjath Aram, Kephira, and Beeroth, 743. The people of Ramah and Geba, 621. The people of Michmas, 122. The people of Bethel and Ai, 223. The people of Nebo, 52. The people of Magbish, 156. The people of the other Elam, 1,254. The people of Haram, 320. The people of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The people of Jericho, 345. The people of Sinai, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, 139 in all. The Nethanim, 
the sons of Zia, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabeoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Siaiha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nicoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Munim, the sons of Nefusim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Baslu, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Arcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatifa. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hattil, the sons of Pokereth, of Zebaim, and the sons of Amai. All the Nethanim and the children of Solomon's servants were 392. And these were the ones who came up from Tel Milah, Tel Harsha, Kirib, Adin, and Immer, but they could not identify their father's house or the genealogy, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. And of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Koz, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name, these sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 120. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses, when they came to the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, I gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Well, my friends, what are we going to do with this chapter? This is not probably on the top ten list of your favorite scripture passages, I would say. And yet, it is the word of God. It's one of my uh, Old Testament professors in seminary said, uh, because there's, you, you have a similar type of passage at the beginning of First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapters 1 through 9, you have all these lists. And uh, he said that it was known as the insomnia chapters of the Bible. 
If you have trouble going to sleep, just turn to First Chronicles 1 and start reading, right? And so you sort of get that feeling here, don't you? But there's a reason why these verses are here. Actually, there are several reasons why. You remember uh, a good detective story like Columbo? Remember that? Remember Columbo or Sherlock Holmes, okay? Miss Marple? Well, in a sense, there are passages like this that make us stop and think and look for the clues as to why what, what, as to why these verses are here, as to what the, the mystery is, as solving the mystery. Why are, do we find this in Scripture? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, as we start this, we want once again to mention that the book of Ezra is divided into two main sections, chapters 1 through 6, dealing with events 539 to 515 B.C., and then chapters 7 through 10, 458 to 457 B.C. We mentioned last time that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are related. Ezra is talking about rebuilding the temple. That's the focus, the temple, the house of the Lord. Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem. And these two books may very well have at one time been regarded as one book. We need to remember, as again I mentioned last time, but I'm going to say it again just uh, to emphasize it. When we look at this history, we're talking about the southern kingdom. So you remember that the, that the nation of Israel had been divided. There had been like civil war between them. And so the ten northern tribes, and that kingdom became known as Israel. So Israel, those ten northern tribes, were broke away from Judah, from the priesthood, from the temple in Jerusalem, and they were taken into captivity in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, known as Judah, was later taken into captivity, starting around 605 B.C., but the main part of it in 586 B.C. And as we looked at last time in chapter 1, the Babylonians... So the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonians from, from uh, the east to the, the Middle Eastern area, so uh, where the, what we call Mesopotamia, that area, the Babylonians were the, who, had, who had conquered Judah, taken the, the Jews into captivity. The Babylonians themselves were conquered by the Medes and Persians under King Cyrus in 539 B.C., and it was that Cyrus that the prophet Isaiah predicted hundreds of years before anyone knew his name. It was that Cyrus, according to God's prophecy, who was the instrument to allow the Jews to go back into the promised land, and that's what we looked at last week in chapter 1. I want again also to mention for a few minutes the importance of history because this is, in many ways, this is what this is all about. Ezra was written from, we could say, a Christian view of history or a religious or a redemptive view of history in which we see God working out his acts, his plans, his desires, his will in history in reality, in flesh and blood reality, in 3D, space and time.
So it's not that you know God is up here in the never never land and has nothing to do with history. No, he is the great actor. He's the one who is putting on the play of history, if you will, on his stage, which is that of the world. And as I mentioned last week, this perspective tells us something about our own views. History is not primarily about class or economic struggle like the communist, and we have a lot of communists today in our government and in our society and in colleges and universities such as the history profession, not all, but we have a lot of communists, those who believe, uh, who basically are atheistic in their perspective and believe that history is all about class or economic struggle. It's not that, nor is it primarily about the issue of race, as in critical race theory that is being promoted today. Rather, all conflicts that we see must be seen in the context. That is to say, a context of good versus evil, a context of God's providential care for his church, because history is the working out of his plan for the salvation of his people, a context of spiritual struggle and conflict. And so we must keep that in mind. And a book like Ezra, even with all these lists of names, as we will see, helps us to understand that in a very real and practical way. Historians or histories that leave out religious matters have missed the boat, not only because of what's there in textbooks, but also what is not in history textbooks that is, textbooks that is so important. Now, Ezra was trying to assert the legitimacy of his own community. He's able to say, that's the point, this is why he's writing this. He's trying to show that the Jews, as they come back into the land, have continuity with the ones that had been there and had been taken into exile. And this is not a blind nationalism. God's blessings are not automatic. God's people, of course, must be faithful to him. It is indeed grace, not race, if we may put it that way. That is the important thing. Attention is also paid to the covenant. God is covenantly bound to us. He has promised salvation to us who have, who have faith in his son. God has promised to do something for that people to whom he is covenantly bound. And the people then were able, by means of the covenant, to give expression to their faith, including, of course, as we will see, the rebuilding of the temple. Well, with that as a background then, let us look at our text today. And the first thing we look at is the listing of the people the listing of the people. And the first subsection is the header, the heading of it, found in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. Now, these are the people of the province. The province, that's an interesting term. He's referring, of course, to Judah, which was now a Persian province, which was now... Uh, under the control of um, of those uh, of the Babylonians, but of course then the Medes and the Persians. 
So instead of standing on its own two feet as an independent nation, it's now just a province. This shows how the people had been degraded, how their status had been lowered, if you will, the children of the province. We are told here that they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. You all know what it's like to go home. You all know what it's like to go home. And so these people now are going home. Notice the leaders that are mentioned here, Zerubbabel and Yeshua. Zerubbabel was the prince, the leader. The priest was Yeshua, Yeshua, corresponding in many ways to Moses and Aaron. Leaders, of course, are important, having been placed there by God so they can rule in a godly way. And so we have the header then, the first part, or verse 1 into verse 2. Now, the next section is the listing of what we can call the layman. So the end of verse 2, all the way through verse 35, the layman. And here they are listed uh, in verses 3 through 20 by family. Now, you notice in your outline, I use the word fratree, P-H-R-A-T-R-Y. That's a very fancy term. And it's a sort of a technical term. You know, of course, when we refer to families, we usually think of what? A mother and father and children, or you might say an extended family, grandparents, children, grandchildren. Um, well, the reason why the term fratree is used to describe this is because there are so many more people. This, for most of these, most of these are not simply a few people. So this is sort of like a clan or somewhere between perhaps a clan and a tribe. So when it says families, we're talking about folks who have descended through that particular line, but not just, not just the immediate family. And so here they are listed by family or fratry. Notice that we have these words, and I'm sure you picked them up. You'll probably say them in your sleep tonight. The sons of so-and-so, the sons of so-and-so, the sons of so-and-so. And And, uh, so that's the pattern that the writer is saying. By the way, I have to mention some of these names here. It's kind of interesting. You see there in Perosh, verse 3, the people of Perosh. You know what Perosh means? It means flee, F-L-E-A. Hey, flee, you know. Um, So kind of an interesting uh, name. Shephatiah, verse 4, Yahweh, or Jehovah, has judged. Verse 5, Ara, ox, or traveler. Verse 6, Pehath Moab, governor of Moab. Zekai means pure, or it could be a short form of Zechariah, which is Yahweh, or Jehovah, has remembered. Benai, verse 10, short for Benaiah, Jehovah, has remembered. Verse 3, Adonikam, the Lord has arisen. Adonikam, the Lord has arisen. The Lord has arisen. Rise up, Lord. Psalm 68. Vi, verse 14, is actually a Persian name, even though obviously this is a person who was a Jew. And uh, so that's kind of interesting, isn't it? 
And Bezai, verse 17, is short for Bezalel in the shadow of God. You cannot but be impressed here, among other things, but with the foreign names. So not just the Jewish names, but also some foreign names as well. But interspersed in the list are names that point very much to covenant faithfulness. So that's verses 3 through 20. Then you come to verses 21 through 35. Um, and so here, your list, the listing is by towns. The thought is that perhaps up through verse 20, uh, that those are ones that were in Jerusalem. So the, all those, the people of, the sons of, and so forth, that those are, that those are in Jerusalem. Uh, but now when we get to verse 21, they are being listed, people are being listed according to the towns. So Ezra begins in the south with Bethlehem and Natopha. He goes north with Anatoth and Asmaveth. Then he goes northwest to the old Gibeonite confederacy, Kirata Aram, Kephira, Beeroth. He goes to the far north of Judah with Michmas, Bethel, and Ai. Then he swings back down to the southwest with Nebo, Magbish, Elam, and Haram. Then to the vicinity of Joppa, that'd be on the Mediterranean coast, with Lod, Hadid, and Ono. And finally, to the northwest with Jericho and Siena. Most of these towns, curiously enough, are Benjamite, not connected with Judah. The tribe of Benjamin was affiliated, of course, with Judah and the nation of Judah. But it's interesting that most of the towns here are from that little tribe of Benjamin. Then, as we look at verses 36 through 58, we have what we call the clergy, the ministers, perhaps we could say, the clergy, 36 through 58. First of all, the priest, verses 36 through 39. Uh, it's interesting that about one-tenth of those who returned are priests. 42,000 returned, about 4,000 are priests. In verses 40 and 42, we notice the Levites in general terms. The Levites, this included the singers and the porters. The singers and the porters. You remember that the singers formed a special choir for the temple service. In terms of the sacrifices, when the sacrifices would make, were made, so the singers now, if you're going to sacrifice, we need to have the whole service. And so the singers are coming back to participate in that. The gatekeepers are the ones who would lock and unlock the temple doors and watch over the treasury. 128 singers, descendants of Asaph, who wrote Psalms 73 to 83, 139 gatekeepers, fairly large number, interestingly. But did you notice something curious about this? Notice verse 40. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, the sons of Hodaviah, 74? That's not very many, is it? This was, so this, this is describing the, apart from the singers and the gatekeepers, this is describing the others of the tribe of Levi, the ones that were supposed to assist, the ones that were supposed to help uh, in terms of 
the sacrifices in terms of of the um, the temple service, and it's amazing, isn't it? Seven four of those Levites that came back. Perhaps they had lost interest in such lowly task. Perhaps they had taken up other secular means of employment. Perhaps they just lost spiritual interest. But it is striking, is it not? Only 74 of the Levites. Then we have the temple servants, verses 43 through 54. There are various foreign names that are employed here. Verse 58, Rezin is an Aramaic name. Verse 49, Besai is Babylonian. Uh, verse 50, Menum is an Arabic name. Uh, Hephism is from the tribe, is from Ishmael. In verses 43 and 50, Zia and Asna are Egyptian. Verse 53, Barkos is Edomite, the Edomites, as we talked about in terms of the book of, of uh, Obadiah. And Sisera is Illyrian. There are nicknames, by the way, in this list. Verse 43, Hasufa means quick. He would have been the halfback, right, on the football team. Naziah, faithful. There are physical descriptions. Verse 45, Lebanon means white. Nakoda means spotted. Maybe he had freckles. Verse 49, Pasea means lame. Verse 51, Hakufa means stooped. And there were circumstances of acquisition. Verse 52, Mahida, bought. Verse 54, Hatifa, snatched. In other words, man-stealing, kidnapped. Now, these were servants in this section then. These were servants of the priest and of the Levites. As a matter of fact, you'll notice in verse 43, it describes them as the Nethanim, the Nethanim. Other cultures may have used these kinds of servants in their temples. These that we find here most likely were prisoners of war. But you know what's interesting about it? Is that despite their lowly status, they were members of the congregation of the Lord who had separated themselves from the nations unto the law of God. We'll come back and, and talk more about that in just a few moments. So, we have then... Uh, in terms of the clergy, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and then Solomon's servants, verses 55 through 58. Um, among the names we find here, Peruda, which means solitary. He was a loner. Hasoferath, the teacher, the professor, perhaps. Darkon, rough, stern. Hatil means talkative. We've all known talkative people. And then, Pokareth Hazabayim. Now, that's a tongue twister, verse 57, which means gazelle hunter, or perhaps the one who has, has custody of the gazelles. Maybe these were originally Canaanites, that is to say, state slaves who became temple servants. 
Perhaps their forebears were taken captive by Solomon. And then look at verses 59 through 63. Those without what we call pedigree. Those without pedigree. You remember the Jews kept careful records. Why? Well, to preserve distinctions of the various tribes because of inheritance rights. With regard to marriages, you want to know uh, in terms of, of lines and other matters governed by laws. But these records, you see, were preserved not uh, by the special providence of God, not only in terms of helping the Jews, in terms of their, their inheritance rights and so forth, but also so that it might certainly be known of what tribe and family the Messiah was born. You see, Ezra 2 ultimately is pointing to Christ. It's giving a context. It's painting a picture. It's bringing these things to life for us, hopefully. These were real people. These were real flesh and blood people that came back into the land, that, came, that went on this, on this long journey, that went back to the promised land to help set up the temple, to help set up the sacrifices once again. But at the same time, there is a context here of God directing these things, not just for the good of the Jews in that particular circumstance, but rather in his directing the Jews back into the promised land so that Jesus could come and so that we could know with certainty that he came from Bethlehem. So notice here, several things, verses 61 through 63, there were those who were allegedly of the priestly line who were excluded. Most interestingly, Barzillai, notice this, verse 61, so Barzillai wanted a great honor by being allied with a noble family, but by doing that, what happened? Apparently, he thus deprived himself and his descendants of the honor and privilege of the priesthood. In other words, he basically sold his birthright. The governor, Zerubbabel, instructed them not to eat of the holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. Now, Urim and Thummim, this is a curious thing. We don't know exactly what this was. We know that Urim means curses. Thummim means perfections. This was a miraculous way of knowing God's will. Um, and so it could have, it probably, probably what happened is that they had, they had a couple of dice. And so they would cast both of them and if both came up Urim, for example, then it would be, the answer would be no, curses. If both came up Thummim, then it would be yes. You had one Urim and one Thummim in terms of the casting of the dice, then it was uncertain. We're not sure, or the answer was not given. Now that's probably what was meant by Urim and Thummim. There are other ideas as well. 
But the point is that they did not have this at that time. They didn't have that ability to discern the will of God. And so until they had that restored somehow, or until somehow these people could otherwise demonstrate that they really were of the priestly line, they were not allowed to have the benefits of the priesthood. And by the way, this was because for their own protection. Because as you read in scripture, if someone who was not of the priestly line partook of the food of the priests, then those people would be seriously judged. Notice in verses 59 and 60, notice in verses uh, 59 and uh, 60, uh, that uh, this is not just the priest, but also the, uh, the others uh, who could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. Now, in verses 64 through 67, we have the totals. Notice the numbers here, 42,360. Same number as in Nehemiah 7. Servants and singers, well, there were 7,337 male and female slaves and 200 singers. The singers here is a reference to the secular entertainers. This was not a reference to the ones in the, uh, in the temple, but rather the entertainers, the, the ones uh, that would sing for entertainment. Also mentioned are the beast of burdens used in a caravan, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 donkeys. Now, can you just see that caravan? I want you to pause. I want you to think. I want you to, to imagine this in your mind's eye. Can you see all these beasts of burden? Can you see all these people as they come back into the land? Does this bring it to life for you, to perhaps, to understand that these were real people with real animals as they came back to the promised land? Notice the reference to the assembly, this assembly in verse uh, 64, that is to say, the called out ones, the whole assembly together was 42,360. So that's the list of the people. Now, much more, much more briefly, we find, we look at the dedication of the people. Verses 68 and 69, as they gave gifts for the temple. 61,000 gold drachmas, so the total weight would be over 1,100 pounds of gold. We usually think of gold in terms of ounces. So an ounce of gold today is worth about $1,800 in today's money. This is not ounces. This is pounds, 1,100 pounds of gold. The 5,000 minas of silver, over 6,000 pounds of silver. 100 priestly garments, Notice the circumstances, or notice the attitude here. They were coming off of a long journey, these people were. They had to start their lives all over again with everything in ruins as they came back to Jerusalem or to these other cities. And yet, notice what we are told. 
verse 68, they offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. They gave willingly. And verse 69, they gave according to their ability. So you remember the widow that Jesus saw in the temple and she cast in just two little bits? Remember what Jesus said? She gave more than all the rich people that cast in of their, of, of their wealth because she gave in all of her living. Isn't that amazing? But they gave willingly and they gave according to their ability. You know, it says, if you look at verse 68, it says some of the heads of their father's houses did this. The implication being that some perhaps did not. What was the cause to which they gave? They gave, as we read in uh, verse 68, they gave for the house of God to erect it in its place. For you see, the house of the Lord is precious in the sight of his saints. Notice verse 70 then, the settlement in the land, the cities we read were in disrepair, but they were, they were their cities by God's appointment, and thus to be back. They were happy to be home. They were happy to live there. So I have three points of application and two concluding thoughts. The first application is this. Be sure to appreciate the key nature or to appreciate their You see, the family and religious ties were strong enough to withstand their being in exile in Babylon. You know the old saying, I'm sure you've heard it, the family that prays together stays together. Exactly. As a matter of fact, this is one of the reasons why it's so important for families to come to church together. And certainly that's true in terms of what we, we, we talk about families, but even extended families, as in, in God's providence in terms of this, there is a strength to that. I pastored in uh, Wisconsin in a rural area before we moved uh, back here to Georgia 14 years ago. And um, a lot of generations there, Dutch, very Dutch area, there are a lot of dairy farmers there. And it was... Um, a blessing to be in a church where you had not just parents and children, but then the grandchildren as well. But even with a nuclear family, appreciate the key nature of families in terms of our faith. Number two, take note here of the roll call of honor. Take note here of the roll call of honor. You know, you think of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Now, the American Revolution may have turned out to be a failure, in which case they would have, as, as Benjamin Franklin said, if we don't all hang together, we will certainly all hang separately. And that would not have been an honorable thing, at least in the eyes of history, I suppose. But the thing is, 
as you think of those men, many of whom in the Declaration of Independence, who signed the Declaration, who, who lost everything that they had during the Revolutionary War, as we look back on their names, as we see their names attached to the Declaration of Independence, we honor them for their sacrifice, for their courage, for their dedication. And this, we can also find this in terms of church history. I think of the Scottish National Covenant of 1638. We trace our heritage as Reformed Presbyterians to Scotland in 1638, almost 400 years ago, as the Covenanters stood up to governmental tyranny to the king who said, I'm the head of the church. They said, no, it is one King Jesus that is the only head and ruler in Zion. And as they were being persecuted, they signed this covenant. Some of them, some of them literally cut themselves so that they could sign not in ink, but with blood. And you can look at copies of the Scottish National Covenant today signed with the blood of those covenanters who were willing to stand up to the tyranny of the government. And so we find it here as well as a roll call of honor, a roll call of faith. This record here, here was kept as part of their reward for their faith and courage as part of their reward for their confidence in God, that he would bring them back, as part of their reward for affection for their own good land, as a memorial, as a remembrance of these heroes of the faith. This record is also to stir up others to follow their good example. May we be found as faithful as these people were. And it's also, a way of pointing in a very down-to-earth way, a way of pointing to the Lamb's book of life in which every one of the elect is written and the name is written there with the blood of Jesus in the Lamb's book of life. And so take note of the roll call of honor. And thirdly, by way of application, remember that everyone was involved Everyone was involved. The kahal, the, the whole assembly, verse 64. We find here a hint of the priesthood of all believers from princes, from leaders, to temple slaves, temple servants. Everyone was involved in temple rebuilding, including even the slaves. They, too, were part of that band that came back to Zion. You see, the gifts of all God's people are important. All are important in the work of the gospel and the life and ministry of the church. Similar to what we read today from 1 Corinthians 12, the New Testament teaching on the gifts of the Spirit in the body of Christ. It's one body, but there are many gifts. There are many parts. There are many members of that one body. And so it is true of us, even here in this congregation and throughout the entire visible church. You see then that the gifts of all God's people are important. And furthermore, other included. This is hinted at 
in terms of the foreign names. It's hinted at, is it not? It's hinted at. The, the more glorious manifestation when Christ comes and pours out his Holy Spirit upon all flesh on the day of Pentecost as the gospel in this new era now goes forward to all the tribes, all the nations of the earth. And so remember then, my friends, that everyone was involved and there is a hint of an even more glorious manifestation of it in this current era. Two concluding thoughts. Number one, the heavenly city is the one that is in view. As they were coming back, you say, they were coming back to the promised land. But we must remember that it was not simply that they were coming back to Jerusalem, but they were coming back to Jerusalem as a picture of the heavenly city. Hebrews 11, verse 16, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That is a kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. That is a kingdom which cannot be moved. That is a kingdom that cannot be changed into a mere province of Persia. And here it is heroes of the faith, as we read in Hebrews 11, that keep pressing on to that goal, to that celestial city, that heavenly city. As we join the pilgrims in every age, as we are headed not back to a mere earthly inheritance, but pointing forward to our eternal heavenly inheritance. The heavenly city is in view. And finally, the Messiah, as I mentioned before, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus Christ, is the key to this text in two ways in particular. First of all, you remember I mentioned Zerubbabel and Yeshua or Joshua? Zerubbabel was the prince. He was the civil ruler, if you will, the king, the king's representative. Yeshua was the priest. But in Jesus, king and priest meet. As a matter of fact, he is our prophet, priest, and king. It is as such that he is our savior. It is as prophet, priest, and king that he died for us as well as lived for us. So that's one way in which we see he's the key to this text. It's pointing forward to the day when the true priest, the true prophet, the true king would be united in one person. But secondly, he is the one who came from the people, children, you know it, of Bethlehem. Did you notice that there? Verse 21, the people of Bethlehem, 123. And there it is. There it is. In a sense, almost buried here at this point. Just part of this whole listing, and yet we know how important that reference was. The people of Bethlehem, 123. 
Why was it important for them to come back? Because it was from Bethlehem that Jesus would be born. And so this coming back into the land and bringing all the people, all these families back into the land was not just for their sake, but it was for our sake because Jesus is the one who was born in Bethlehem. Praise be to God. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we do say, indeed, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord for thy grace and thy mercy, for the fact that thou art the one who has loved us and shown us that love, even by bringing back these people back into the land and providing, therefore, for the birth of Jesus. We thank thee, Father, and born of a virgin, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we pray that in light of that reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we pray, Father, that we would be faithful even as these people in Ezra too were faithful, that we would be faithful in promoting thy kingdom and thy worship. Grant us that grace, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.